So we are continuing our series. We just started in the book of 1 John. We've covered 1 John 1, verses 1 through 4. And this morning I want us to investigate three comments from the next three verses in this series. Three comments from these three verses. Verse 5 is a comment on God's person. Verse 5 is a comment on God's actual person. Notice verse 5. This is the message which we have heard from Him. This is Jesus from verse 3. This is the message which we have heard from Him, Jesus, and declare to you that God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. John uses different images and figures of speech to help us better understand God's essence and character. One of the first metaphors John uses to describe God is light. Light. The statement is made that God is light. Not that God is a light. Not that God is the reflection of light. The statement is made that God is in and of himself light. In verse 5, notice there's no definite article in front of the word light, meaning it doesn't read God is the light. No, it's just God is light. There's no definite article. And in the Greek language, if there's no definite article in front of a word, then it is a comment on that word's nature and essence and character. And that's true in this case. Describing God as light captures the essence of God's nature as God. It's interesting, the word light is mentioned 95 times in 1 John. Notice Psalm 104, verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with honor and majesty. Verse 2. Who cover yourself with light as with a garment. In both a literal sense and a figurative sense, God is covered in light. God wraps himself up in light. The study of light is called optics. And from a scientific perspective, light is a form of electromagnetic radiation, if it's visible or not. Light is made from small packets of energy called photons. And those photons consist of waves of electromagnetic radiation. Light is an amazing phenomena. Nothing is faster than light. Light travels at 186,282 miles per second. The fastest humans have ever traveled were the astronauts aboard Apollo 10. But those astronauts traveled at just 0.006% of the speed of light. So it's not even close. Light is the fastest thing in the universe. It travels through the air a million times faster than sound. That's the reason in a thunderstorm we see the lightning before we hear the thunder because light is faster than sound. Light moves through space at 983,571,056 feet per second. That's crazy fast. God is all of that, and God is more, because God cannot be measured. Question, 
What does it mean that God is light? What does that mean? The answer, in biblical language, God's light represents His unadulterated holiness. God's light represents His absolute and utterly unadulterated holiness. Remember, holiness means a separation. Holiness means a separation from all that is sin. God exists in absolute holiness with no mixture of sin. Throughout the Old Testament, as an extension of that holiness, God often manifested himself to his people in the form of literal light. One example of that is from Moses. Moses met God on Mount Sinai. He met him there to receive from God the Ten Commandments and other parts to the ancient Mosaic law. Notice Exodus 34, verse 29. Now it was so when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand when he came down from the mountain. Those were the two tablets of stone uh, containing the Ten Commandments. Uh, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, that Moses did not know that the face, the skin of his face shone while he talked with him. Meaning Moses, as he met God on Mount Sinai, his face shone during that entire time he and God conversed. Verse 30, so when Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone and they were afraid to come near him. Moses and God himself met on Mount Sinai. God diluted his presence to some degree on that mountain. If he hadn't have, Moses would have been annihilated on the spot. No one can exist in the presence, the undiluted presence of God. So God diluted his presence to some degree, but the light from God's person was still so strong, so intense, that through some miraculous means, some residue from that supernatural light remained on Moses' face. It was there and shone so much that he came down from the mountain and people were afraid of him. And for some time after that, Moses had to cover his face until the light effect wore off. God's light is both actual and spiritual. In a spiritual sense, light is contrasted with darkness. Light and darkness are complete opposites. Light represents God and goodness and righteousness. Darkness represents Satan and sin and evilness. Light represents truthfulness and integrity, and darkness represents error and lies. That contrast between them is illustrated in John 3, verse 19. And this is the condemnation that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light. Why? Why do men love darkness? Because their deeds were evil. So evil deeds are equated to darkness. Let's go back to 1 John 1 and verse 5 one more time. This is the message which we have heard from him, Jesus, and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. This verse is actually a double negative. A more literal translation of this verse reads, God is light, and in him there is not no darkness at all. Not no darkness at all. That's not good English, but it's excellent theology. 
That means God is light and there is no possible trace of darkness in him. One reason that is, is because light and darkness cannot coexist. If there's light, then there's no darkness. If there's darkness, then there's no light. Light and darkness cannot coexist. God is 100% pure, undiluted light, meaning God is pure and absolute holiness. He is totally separate from sin. God is light, and that also means that what light does, God can do. And what does light do? Notice, one, light exposes what is hidden. Light exposes what is hidden. Light exposes what we aren't able to see in the darkness. John 3, verse 20. For everyone practicing evil, these are people that practice evil on an habitual basis, hates the light and does not come to the light. Why? Lest his deeds, meaning his evil deeds, should be exposed. Light reveals what is hidden and secret. Most crimes, from a statistical perspective, I understand most crimes are committed during daylight. But the most serious crimes and most violent crimes are committed during darkness at night because there's less chance at night of being discovered and exposed. In our first pastorate, uh, we had been invited to dinner on a Saturday night. And most often we don't accept Saturday night dinner invitations uh, because it's Saturday night and I'm doing final sermon preparation. I start my sermons on Sunday sometime. I'll, I'll start next Sunday sometime today. And, and, I, and I prepare all through the week when I have windows of opportunity, which often is until late, late at night. And, uh, but I don't finish, really finish until Saturday night. And so I, I do still do sermon preparation and editing on Saturday night, so we don't often go out. But for some reason, this was an exception. Uh, we were renting, we, we, we hadn't been married long. Uh, we were renting a small house, probably less than 900 square feet. Um, and we were renting that house, and it was dark when we arrived home from that dinner. Uh, there was no garage attached to the house. Um, so the only, we went in the front door and we opened the front door and, and it's dark outside and we turned on the light and that light immediately revealed that we had been victims of a home invasion. Um, the thieves stole our small television set and my attache case. Now the actual stolen island items weren't that big of a deal because the television didn't even work, but you know which probably frustrated the thieves. But the bigger problem was that attaché case contained the only copy of my sermon manuscript that I was scheduled to preach in another 12 hours. Can you spell panic? This is before computers, and all my sermons were handwritten. I manuscript all my sermons. So I literally stayed up all night long in an attempt to remember and write down all that I had recorded earlier in that original manuscript. I was hoping the thief would read the sermon he had stolen and would be so convicted he would return it, but that didn't happen. I guess it wasn't that good of a sermon. Um, light exposes what is secret and hidden. Sometimes that's good. 
And sometimes, as it was in our case, it's not so good. Then second, notice light generates life. Light generates life. John 8 and verse 12, this verse is immediately after the adulterous woman was brought to Jesus. Remember, the Pharisees caught this woman in the act of adultery, meaning the Pharisees were peeping toms. And second, it takes two people to constitute an act of adultery. There's the woman, where's the man? Because they weren't interested in actual justice. They wanted to pin Jesus in a corner. They wanted to trick him and deceive him. So they brought this woman who had committed adultery. Uh, That was a capital offense under the Mosaic Code. And the Pharisees wanted Jesus to condemn her to death. He wouldn't do that. Jesus forgave this woman. And after that, her her accusers all left. Then Jesus said to those people that did remain... He said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. All things that are alive need energy to sustain life and survive. Most plants, especially those that produce flowers and or fruit, derive energy from light through a process called photosynthesis. But not all light has the same effect on plants. Direct sunlight and fluorescent lights are beneficial to most plants, but incandescent and halogen lights aren't able to create photosynthesis and so aren't that helpful. It is true, some parasitic plants can survive in total darkness. There's no light. In order to get nutrients, then, those plants act as parasites and attach themselves to the roots of other plants close to them or get energy from fungi or fungi. But most plants require sunlight. God is light in the sense that he is also life. And he is the source and sustainer of all life, including spiritual life. Last time I mentioned a famous evangelist named Louis Palau. Um, Louis Palau passed in 2021 at age 86. He did international crusades. Uh, More often than not, uh, those crowds consisted of non-English speaking people. Uh, He was an amazing man. And he authored a number of books. And one of them is entitled High Definition Life. And Evangelist Palau contended that there is no high-definition life apart from Jesus. And there isn't. I have met, this is not ministerial exaggeration, I have met literally thousands of Christians. I have spoke to one-on-one thousands of Christians. And I've never met a Christian that regretted receiving Jesus. Never. Not one. I have met, though, more Christians than I can count that have regretted waiting to receive Jesus. I've had them tell me, why did I wait so long? If I had only known what it meant to be a Christian, I would have done this earlier. Why did I wait? I regret that. This is hypothetical, but if I could put Jesus in your life for five minutes, just five minutes, you would never let him go. Jesus is light and he is life. Notice Romans 13, verse 11. And do this, knowing the time, that now it is high time 
to awake out of sleep. Spiritual sleep. The church in the West is sound asleep. Uh, the church in persecuted countries, such as in parts of Africa and Islamic-dominated countries and in China, uh, the church is different than here. Uh, those Christians are committed to the core. Uh, the church in the West, though, is sound asleep. Um, it is high time to wake out of sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. This salvation mentioned in verse 11 is the salvation of our bodies. This isn't the salvation of our souls. The salvation of our souls occurs at our conversion, at the moment we receive Jesus, and that happened in the past. This is past tense. This, the salvation of our bodies, is future tense. This is something prophetical. This is the salvation of our bodies at the moment Jesus returns. And at that exact moment, our bodies will be reconfigured and remade into a perfect form that is equipped to survive and thrive in heaven. So at the moment Jesus returns at his rapture, he descends from heaven, stops at the atmosphere above the earth, and catches out, raptures out off this earth all Christians. And at that moment, our bodies are going to be changed. That's the salvation of our bodies, and that's what is uh, mentioned here. This verse actually states the obvious, and that is in a chronological sense, Jesus' return is sooner now than it was at the moment we first believed and received salvation. In essence, Paul said, time is running out, people. We don't know that, or we wouldn't know that, judging from most pastors. I don't know how this statistic was determined. But I understand that just 9% of evangelical pastors address eschatological or prophetical matters from the pulpit. Just 9% of evangelical pastors preach about Jesus' return. People, that is ministerial malpractice. If there were ever, ever a time to adjust Jesus' return, it's now. These are the end times. It is time to wake up from our spiritual slumber, wake up from our spiritual sleepiness, and prepare ourselves and others to experience Jesus' return. And we should be praying, as John did, even so come, Lord Jesus. Verse 12, the night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness, and let us put on the armor of light. Verse 13 lists some of the works of darkness. Let us walk properly, as in the day, meaning as in the daylight, not in revelry. Revelry means loud and obnoxious uh, festivities, out-of-control parties. The English Standard Version actually translates that word as orgies. Not in revelry, and drunkenness, we should all understand the seriousness of intoxication. Um, I realize some in this room consume adult beverages in moderation. Some of us in this room abstain from alcohol altogether. I cannot build a case for absolute abstinence from Scripture. I can, though, build a strong case against drunkenness. Drunkenness is a serious, serious 
matter. God considers it a sin, something we should never do. And if we consume alcohol in moderation or don't consume alcohol at all, the point is we all should have a holy hatred for the senseless violence and damage, destruction and death that drunkenness causes. There should be in each of us a zero tolerance for drunk driving. I remember some months ago, uh, St. Gaul's parking lot was just, this is during the week, one morning, just jammed with more cars than I'd ever seen. And the cars were coming and parking in our parking lot, which is fine. We allow them uh, to do that on special occasions. We have no problem at all doing that. And uh, I saw a mother and her teenage daughter uh, coming to the cars. I said, what, what's, what's going on? Um, and the teenage daughter said, uh, it's, it's a memorial service. My friend and her sister were coming home from Reno, and a drunken driver crossed the median, hit them head on, and my friend was killed at age 22. And her sister is alive, but she's seriously injured. I hate that. We should all hate that. Innocent people losing their life because someone was selfish enough to drink to the point of intoxication and then get behind the wheel. That is wrong. A thousand times wrong. So drunkenness is something that is considered a deed of darkness. And the verse continues, not in lewdness. Lewdness means something sexually crude and offensive. This thing called twerking is lewd and vulgar. A Christian should never consider such activity. And lust. Lust means desire. And not just sexual desires, we most often use that word, but all inappropriate desires, such as being gluttonous or having an addiction to shopping. Lust can be unacceptable. Uh, even a good thing taken too far. Not in strife. Strife means being argumentative and contentious. Don't misunderstand. Not a mature, respectful interaction between two people exchanging opposing opinions. That's fine. That's permissible. Not even vigorous debate between people. That's permissible. But this is a raw, often loud, and obnoxious contentiousness. And there are people who want to argue about everything. That is a deed of darkness. Envy. Envy means coveting or desiring what someone else has. And sometimes the most serious form of enviousness is we don't want them to have it. If we can't have it, we don't want them to have it. These six things are considered works of darkness. And according to these verses, we are to wear as clothing deeds of light. As someone would put on and wear pieces of armor, those deeds of light we should wear, and we are to take off, notice the verse reads, cast off, take off deeds of darkness, represented in these six behavior things, we would take them off just as we would take off dirty clothes and throw those clothes into a dirty clothes hamper. And I realized that a dirty clothes hamper could be a foreign concept to some men. I get that. Um, how often have I heard Hopi say, what are those socks doing there? I said, they're not doing anything there. But they're only there momentarily. I'll get them to where they belong. Just don't push me. Just let me have some time. 
what can I say? Marriage. Anyway, <laughs> verse 5 is a comment on God's person. Verse 6 is a comment on the hypocrite's profession. The hypocrite's profession. Notice verse 6. If we say, if we say that we have fellowship with him, God, and walk in darkness, stop there. The word walk means live. To walk means live in a figurative sense. Walking implies a progression. Standing is stationary. There is no progression, just standing. But walking is a progression. Uh, Step after step after step after step. Uh, Just as our entire existence on this earth is a progression, moment after moment after moment, minute after minute. In this instance, walk is used as a figure of speech. And walk describes someone's continuous, ongoing conduct and experiential behavior. So, according to this, if we profess to be in fellowship with God, But then we live and conduct ourselves contrary to that profession. Meaning if we don't practice what we preach, then according to this verse, notice we lie. We lie and do not practice the truth. Remember from last time we said, we define fellowship as a sense of agreeableness between ourselves and God. We are related to God, starting at our salvation. God becomes our spiritual father, and we become his spiritual child. And as in a normal parent-child arrangement, we are to maintain a sense of agreeableness between ourselves and God. That's the essence of that Greek word koinia. Koinia translated as fellowship. So, if someone insists that he and God are on agreeable terms, if he argues that he's close to God, if he argues that he and God are are good, but then he practices the deeds of darkness and does shameful and embarrassing things God finds unacceptable and disagreeable, then according to this verse, he's a liar. He's a liar and he's being hypocritical. George Barnard, the famous evangelical poster, Polster made the statement, quote, there's an interesting contradiction between what we say we believe and what we do or do not do in response to those beliefs. Notice one more time. There's an interesting contradiction between what we say we believe and what we do or do not do in response to those beliefs. And how often is that true about us? The word hypocrite came into our language from an ancient Greek word that meant an actor or an actress. Actors and actresses pretend to be someone that they are not. Um, This was someone that had a role in a theatrical production At that time, actors and actresses uh, wore large facial masks to designate certain characters and could even switch masks during a production. And actors would interpret that particular theatrical role from hiding underneath that mask. Over time, that Greek word took on an extended meaning to describe 
someone who was wearing a figurative mask and pretending to be someone or something he wasn't. People still wear hypocritical masks. I've seen them. Some wear an intellectual mask, pretending to possess elite intelligence, even holding a counterfeit Menza card. Menza is the IQ society of which I have never been a part. Uh, some wear a mask of professional success, pretending to have it made. Some wear a cool guy mask. That was the mask Fonzie wore on Happy Days. Actually, it wasn't a mask. The Fonz was cool. Um, some of us remember that. The worst possible mask we can wear is a spiritual mask. And these masked people come into the church smiling, sit down, turn their halos on bright, and hide behind a smug, pious facade of religiosity. And religiosity is an actual word. That person described in this verse is that masked person. Remember, we can fool all of the people some of the time, and we can fool some of the people all the time, but people, we cannot fool God. I understand that in the French Riviera, it is considered a status symbol to have a balcony. I get that. Balconies are cool. We never had one, but balconies are cool. It's such a big deal there that some apartments will paint balconies on the exterior wall of their building just underneath their apartment. And sometimes those people paint wet laundry hanging from a clothesline on those balconies underneath their apartment to cause it to seem more authentic. But it's not authentic. It's a facade. It's a form of superficial mask. And sometimes Christians wear one of those masks. Sometimes we pretend to be on the same page as God. Most often, that pretentious happens in church. But then after church, our practice contradicts our profession. People hate hypocrisy. And some people use hypocrisy as an excuse. I've had this happen often. Some use the excuse not to attend church because there are, quote, hypocrites in the church. I've had people tell me, I don't do church. There are too many hypocrites in the church. I can't argue that. There are hypocrites even in this congregation. I just don't know who they are because they're really good hypocrites. (laughs) There were hypocrites, though, I have found at Bank of America. There were hypocrites at Smith's and Walmart's. Hypocrites in the Douglas County school system. And hypocrites at Pulse and the Swim Center and at McDonald's and at the Carson Valley Inn Steakhouse. There were hypocrites all around us. But those hypocrites don't prevent us from frequenting those establishments. The fact is, some people use hypocrisy as an excuse not to do the right thing and then associate with hypocrites and patronize hypocrites 24-7. That is hypocritical in and of itself. It seems people hate hypocrisy other than the hypocrisy in themselves. John Kerry is the president's climate czar. And don't misunderstand, his particular political party affiliation is irrelevant to this illustration. Both parties are guilty of this. (laughs) I think it's 
probably difficult to find someone in Washington, D.C. who isn't, more often than not, hypocritical. Mr. Kerry is the climate czar. He is a fanatical hater of fossil fuels. He calls anyone who even questions this craziness over climate change, he calls them ignorant, evil, or both. He even said that climate change poses a greater threat to our society than does terrorism. He is entitled to his opinions. Um, I'm not suggesting he be censored or counseled. That's not what we do. That's what the left does. So I'm not suggesting that. He's perfectly entitled to his opinion. The question is, if Mr. Kerry hates fossil fuels so much and wants to turn this nation greener than a piece of broccoli, then why has he owned an estimated three to six million dollars in stocks of more than 50 oil and gas related companies? That's hypocrisy. If he hates fossil fuels so much, why in the first 18 months after being commissioned the climate czar, his private jet used more than 300 metric tons of carbon dioxide? And the actual number is even worse now. And that doesn't count the carbon footprint from his multiple mansions and multiple personal vehicles. He's been the pollu pollution poster child. And like other politicians, other government bureaucrats, and famous celebrities, John Kerry voluntarily does what he wants to do at the same time insisting that we, the little people, can't. And I saw an interview where he was confronted on that inconsistency and he just blew it off. That's hypocrisy. That's not just hypocrisy though, but that attitude is a threat to the rights and freedoms of all people. Most of us, most of us have been hypocritical to some degree at some point in time, but we need to make a conscientious effort not to repeat that hypocrisy. We need to talk the talk and then walk the talk. Verse 5 was a comment on God's person. Verse 6 was a comment on God's, uh, pardon me, on the hypocrite's profession. And third, verse 7 is a comment on the Christian's practice. A comment on the Christian's practice. Notice verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he, God, is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. One another means an agreeableness between ourselves and God. According to the first half of this verse, and we're saving the second half until next time, according to this verse, if our ongoing conduct, if our ongoing behavior resembles light and not darkness, then we are agreeable to God because God is light. Paul reminds us who we are in 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 5. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not, not of the night, nor of darkness. Since Christians are considered sons of light and not sons of darkness, then we need to act consistent with who we are. Our attitudes and actions need to be consistent with who we are as sons of light. 
And then notice Scripture connects light to virtue and moral conduct. Ephesians 5, verses 8 and 9. For you were once darkness, once darkness. That was pre-salvation. We were darkness before Jesus. But now, present tense, you are light in the Lord. So walk as children of light. Verse 9, for the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Listen to to these verses from the New Living Translation. For once you were full of darkness, pre-salvation, but now you have light from the Lord, post-salvation. So live as people of light. Verse 9, for this light within you produces only what is good and right and true. Now, notice the transitional statement. Notice the transition. This is transitioning from what God is to what we are. Not only is God light in his own essence, but God is also the source of the Christian's light. Not only is God light in his own character and essence, but God is also the source of the Christian's light. Some of us that are, you know, second, third generation Christians, um, remember as a child singing a song in Sunday school called This Little Light of Mine. We held up a finger representing a candle and sang the lyrics, This Little Light of Mine, I'm going to Let It Shine. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine, let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. No one knows that song's actual origin, but numerous artists have covered that song. Bruce Springsteen, who is not a believer, actually does a, an excellent rendition of that song and includes the name Jesus, something the original song doesn't do, it's strange the original song mentions Satan, but not Jesus. In the 50s and 60s, that song became a civil rights anthem. But as Christians, that song describes what we are called on to do. Let our lights shine. Now, I want us to see something interesting. From Matthew 5, this is from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Verse 14, Jesus said to his disciples, and as an extension to us, you are the light of the world. So Jesus considers us the light of the world. Before we move on, let me mention an apparent contradiction that critics bring up. Earlier we read from John 8, verse 12. Remember, then Jesus said to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. So putting those statements together, in his sermon, Jesus said, we as Christians are the light of the world. And then Jesus turned around and made a public announcement that he is the light of the world. So how is that possible? How are we the light of the world? And at the same time, Jesus is the light of the world. Isn't that a contradiction? No, it isn't a contradiction. And the reason it isn't a contradiction is found in Genesis 1. Genesis 1, in that account, God created all that there is in six 24-hour days. That is called the literal Genesis creation account. I subscribe to to that account. This is creation day number four. Notice verse 14. Then God said, 
Let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night. Most translations read expanse instead of firmament. Expanse means the great extent of something. Verse 15, and let them be for lights in the firmament or expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. Verse 16, then God made two great lights. The greater light to rule the day, that would be the sun, and the lesser light to rule the night, that would be the moon. Now, notice God called the sun the greater light, and God called the moon the lesser light. And then notice from verse 16, God called both the sun and the moon two great lights. He called them both lights. From a scientific perspective, we understand that the moon is just a satellite from the earth. In size, it's actually larger than the planet Pluto. But the moon doesn't generate light of its own. In 1546, an Englishman named John Haywood created a proverb where he said the moon was made from cheese. Green cheese, to be exact. We now know that is not the case. The moon does not consist of cheese. But the moon is pretty much a dead object. Although scientists of late believe some recent discovered ridges on the surface of the moon could mean, could mean that the earth has an active tectonic system. But, but, but we don't know. But still, the moon creates no energy and the moon generates no light of its own. But God is able to call the moon a light because the moon reflects the light of the sun. The moon's light is not its own light. It doesn't have light. The moon's light is a reflection of the sun's light. So much so that if we didn't have the moon, a day on earth would last just 6 to 12 hours. So the moon is considered a significant light source even though it is reflected light. Using this analogous comparison, Jesus does, Jesus represents the sun and Christians represent the moon. And analogous to the moon, we are unable to generate our own spiritual light. Our spiritual light comes from the sun who is Jesus. Our light is reflected light from him. Verse 14, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Cities situated on a hill are more visible than those situated on the plains. In the ancient Middle East, villages and cities would often be constructed on hills and more mountainous regions, such as foothills, for numerous reasons. Um, that's the reason the Bible describes going up to Jerusalem and coming down from Jerusalem. Jerusalem is situated on a rocky plateau at an elevation of 2,550 feet. It is 3,800 feet above the Dead Sea. If you aren't aware, the Dead Sea is the lowest point on earth because it is 1,378 feet below sea level. Because Jerusalem is located or situated on a hill at night, Jerusalem's lights can be seen for miles. In that same sense, we are to conduct ourselves and behave so as to be certain that our light can be seen. If unannounced, I came to your neighborhood and just knocked on 
each door in your neighborhood, or if I came to your school and visited a class, or your store where you're employed, or office, or another place of employment, and if I announced to the people there, um, I need to find a Christian. I need to talk to a Christian. Is there a Christian here? I'm curious, would someone mention your name? Would someone go, yeah, uh, Sally, she's a Christian. Yeah, George, he's a Christian. I mean, if I were searching for a Christian, and I, you know, I, I ended up at your place of employment, or where you shop, or where you attend school, would someone mention your name? The problem is some of us are secret service saints and undercover Christians. We don't want people to know. As a Christian, Jesus, in a spiritual sense, invisibly is inside us. We are to permit that spiritual light radiating from Him inside us to shine out through us to people around us. Remember, He is the original light. We just reflect His light to those people around us. Our light is not to be concealed. It is to be conspicuous. I have heard people say something foolish like, my faith is a private matter. I don't discuss it in public. That is absolutely antithetical to what God said we are to do. Psalm 107 verse 2, let the redeemed of the Lord, that's us as Christians, we have been redeemed. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Most Christians are guilty of the sin of silence. God said, say so. It's doubtful this happens now as things have changed over time. But I remember in grade school, we had what was called show and tell time. Show and tell time. A student would bring an interesting item to class, something unusual, a snake in a jar. Actually, we preferred snakes in jars because it freaked all the girls out. It was really cool. But, or a turtle or a strange rock, something. And the student would then bring that item up to the front of the class. And he would show this to all the classmates and even encourage them to come up and, you know, touch it or, or look and examine it closer. And then he would talk about it. He would describe that object. And so it was show and tell time. We are called on to be show and tell Christians. We are to model Christianity and we are to mouth Christianity. Jesus illustrates how illogical it is to have light and then conceal it. Notice verse 15. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Why would someone light a lamp and then set it underneath a basket where the light cannot be seen? That's nonsensical. Jesus said a lamp that is lit is designed to be positioned on a lampstand where it can have maximum visibility and light the entire room. Now, other than some modern technological exceptions, a light is to be seen. Now, a welding arc is extremely bright light. Um, staring at a welding arc can blind someone. That would cause severe eye problems or damage. A welding arc is not to be seen unless the welder is using special eye protection. A photo flash inside a copy machine is not to be seen. But other than some modern exceptions, a light is meant to be seen. 
That's its function as a light. Verse 16, let your light so shine before men. Meaning people are to see our light. Now this is a statement against monasticism. That might be an unfamiliar word. Monasticism is the practice of retiring from society and existing in seclusion for religious reasons. Hermits are the ultimate monastics as hermits exist in near complete solitude. Uh, Some hermits take a vow of silence, don't even speak. Um, Monks and nuns exist in a lesser form of monastic communities such as monasteries and covens uh, except that monks and nuns don't completely isolate themselves from the public as hermits do because they often serve the public. Monasticism is not a biblical practice. Monks and nuns are part of some church traditions but are never mentioned in scripture. Christianity is not to exist in isolationism and seclusion. Christianity is to exist on Main Street for people to see. That's the reason Jesus said, let your light so shine before men. There's no biblical justification for being a hermit. We are called on to be public Christians. One man said to me, and I understand his frustration. Society is becoming more and more frustrating. He said, I'm moving to Montana and build a cabin off the grid so far into the woods, I don't have to see people for six months at a time. That's not what God has called us to do. In fact, that's selfishness. Verse 16 continues, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Don't misunderstand this verse. This statement from Jesus does not mean we are to do good works in order to be seen of men as the Pharisees did. The Pharisees' attitude was, look at me, look at me, look at me. One example of that is from Matthew 6, verse 5. Jesus said, and when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, meaning Pharisees, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the street. Why? That they may be seen by men. The difference between us and those Pharisees is in attitude. Doing something good can be a bad thing if the motive behind doing that something good is wrong. Doing something good can be a bad thing and an acceptable thing if the motive behind that doing something good is a wrong and unacceptable motive. And notice that we are to let our light shine through doing good works before men, meaning in public, so that God is glorified. The Pharisees did good works before men to glorify themselves. We are to do good works to bring attention to God. The Pharisees did good works to bring attention to themselves. The difference between us and those Pharisees is in attitude attitude. That's the reason on a periodic basis we should do a checkup from the neck up. Why am I doing this? Is it to please men? Is it to please people? Or is it to please God? Am I doing this to be recognized? Is this for ego gratification? Or am I doing this to bring attention to God? Am I doing this to glorify God? I shared this before, I'm sure, 
former President Woodrow Wilson shared this interesting account. This happened to him before he became president. He said this, I was sitting in a barber's chair when I became aware that a unique and powerful personality had just entered the room. He had come in quietly to have his hair cut, and he sat in the chair next to mine. Every word the man uttered, though it was not in the least didactic, didactic mean not patronizing. He wasn't patronizing this barber. He was sincere. Still, each word he spoke showed a personal interest in the man that was serving him, meaning the barber. And before I got through with what was being done to me, I was aware that aware that I had attended an evangelistic service because Mr. D.L. Moody was in that chair. I purposely remained behind after he left and noticed the singular effect his presence had brought upon the barbershop. Those men talked in undertones now. They didn't actually know his name, but they knew that something had elevated their thoughts. And I felt I left that place as I should have left a place of worship. People, that is letting our light shine. Let's bow our heads. Father, I thank you for these instructions. I thank you for reminding us that you are light. You are unadulterated in absolute holiness. And we are to walk in that light And we are to reflect that light ourselves from you onto others that we interact with. Please help us to be more committed to letting our light shine. So many of us at certain times, I'm sure, no one would have suspected we were a Christian. No one. Because our our behavior, our conduct perjured our profession. You know, our walk didn't match our talk. And that's so sad. But, But I've been guilty of that. I'm ashamed of that. And I'm sure others have too. God, I just pray that you will help us to be the light you have called us to be. Help us to show Jesus. We might be the only Jesus someone will ever, ever see. So help us to reflect his light to those people around us so that ultimately they will be attracted by that light and come to Jesus themselves. Thank you for what we've learned. I hope and pray we don't forget it. Help it to make a difference in each of us, I pray. And I thank you in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen and amen.